Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Random moment in your day and ask that question that particularly men don't like to be asked. And I was to say to you, what are you thinking about right now? What would be the most likely answer? A rhetorical question. I don't want to hear what you're thinking about. And I'm not going to do it. I just want you to think about it. I don't want you to speak. Food, food, yeah, they're, they're the safe answers, right? There are, I reckon there are a few things that we don't want to yell out, that we don't want anyone to know about. Like, like in, the other way to ask this question is, what occupies your mind the most? What do you most think about in any given day? Husbands, turn to your wives and say, you, my darling. You're welcome. That one's for free. Maybe some of your answers would be work. Uh, maybe if you don't like your work, you're thinking about the weekend. And as you're thinking about the weekend, you start thinking about the weather. I check the weather app multiple times in any given day because remember, my thumbs are so green. Maybe you're thinking about your family and they could be good thoughts or not so good thoughts. But what about some of the stuff that we think about a lot, but we don't really like talking about politics, sex, Faith, there's a lot of things that we think about that we don't often want to talk so freely and vulnerably about. And I guarantee for everybody in this room, I know this is a big statement to guarantee something that I think all of you think about multiple times in a day. Can I suggest or bet my house on the fact that one of the things you think about multiple times through the day is money? You're constantly thinking about money. We are constantly thinking in one way or another about money. We don't like talking about it, but we think about it a lot. We think about it all the time. I think Jesus talks a lot about money. He certainly talks a lot about money more than we are comfortable talking about money, particularly in the church. But I notice that Jesus tends to talk a lot about the things that we think about a lot. And it should surprise us when it comes to money and what Jesus had to say about, say about it, it should come as no surprise that the title of our current series in First Peter, and in fact today we're taking a little bit of a pause on First Peter, we, we, there's definitely themes there, uh, but we are taking a little bit of a sidetrack as we talk about money. But the title of, Peter, of this Peter series we've been in is really apt for the things Jesus had to say about money, live different. He wants us to think differently about money. He wants us to live with a different philosophy. He wants us to think differently about it. He wants us to practice our financial practices differently to the way of the world. I remember a time, and this story sounds like a boast, it's not meant to be, it's just meant to illustrate this different idea. I remember a time when uh, Brooke and I were in Toowoomba and we wanted to do some upgrades to our home. We'd bought a house uh, that the, as soon as we walked in, we loved it, but it needed a new kitchen. So we went to the bank manager, the loan manager and said, can we talk about getting a redraw on our mortgage so we can do some upgrades to our kitchen and other few things around the place. And as we sat with her, probably about two or three years into having had our mortgage on our home, she said to us as she looked at all the money, she looked at it and said, you guys should be putting a whole lot more into your mortgage than you really are. You should be putting a whole... Now, that, now this is poor. that's a good thing to do, right? Good thing to pay down a loan. There's nothing wrong with that. But what she couldn't see was the big chunk of our money 
that we were giving to our local church. She couldn't see that. And if she had have seen that, well, she probably would have thought we were foolish, but she would have seen that a big chunk of that money is going towards our local church. And so right there, it's living differently. Rather than doing what the world says to do about a whole range of things, Jesus wants us to live and think different. The world would say, pay it down. Jesus says, pay it up to heaven. And that is one of the cheesiest things I've ever said, but it works. It works. As I think about now as a family, having moved from Toowoomba to Brisbane and all the things that are going on in our world, the interest rate hike, and it wasn't that long ago that I said we were coming up to that stage where our fixed interest loan ended and we got hit in one hit with all of those increase in the interest rates that have happened over the last two years. Apart from the hike in interest rates, we all know as we walk through the shopping centres, we see how much food costs these days. I saw a bag of chips for eight bucks the other day, I couldn't believe it. As we think about the you know, employment issues and all the, all the insecurity and uncertainty in the world, how do we hold on to the financial values that Jesus outlines for us? How do we, and how does we as the Jackson family, review our values, review the things that we find important when it comes to our money? What, how do we review it? What do we review it by so that we can envision for the future? And I know as I think about many in our church family today who are sitting listening to my voice right now, there is a whole spectrum of experiences and lifestyles and everything when it comes to money. We have with us some people who are doing it really tough, who the the reality of the next few weeks is hard enough to think about, let alone the next few years. Right up to people who maybe when I asked you, you don't think about money much, you've got a lot of it, so it's not a stressor for you. It's not something that you think about a lot because you don't have to worry about it. You have to worry about where the next paycheck is coming from. So how do we, across all the spectrum, talk about money without offending anyone? What principles do we hold on to, the principles that Jesus taught about money in order for us to review and think about uh, where we're at as, as a church and where we're at as individuals and how we manage our finances in a way that is different to the way that the world tells us we should be living? If you're really savvy and you read my campus email, you see, you'll see that this is, of course, Sam's talking about money today. We're talking about money across our church because I saw the email last week and down at the bottom, uh, we're behind budget in giving. So of course, the giving talk comes out and yep, whatever. Okay, if you're a cynic, great. Let's, let's just put that on the table and leave it there. The reality though that I want you, to, want you to know is that even though we're behind budget, we are living within our means. The church is and all the people who make the financial decisions, we are living within our means. We're not spending outlandishly or anything as a church. And so, uh, but it is a good time for us as individuals, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in with the pressures of the world, but also corporately together as a family for us to just take a step back and think about money and not just think about it, talk about it. I want to propose four principles this morning that I hope will cause us and guide us to think about money as citizens of the Kingdom of God, as people who live according to a different set of values, as people who are a spiritual temple, who are filled with the Spirit, people who are red dots living among grey dots, who are called to live differently and be different in the world, no matter how much money we have. What are four principles that we can live by? So here we go. 
Jesus and money. Jesus and money. The first thing about Jesus and money, the first thing I want you to hear today is he wants 100% of your money. That's the launch pad. He wants 100% of your money. Here's the irony though. He wants it, but he doesn't need it. Jesus doesn't need it. Do you really think that Jesus needs your money to do his thing? If you do, it's not right. Jesus doesn't need your money, but he wants your money. And the reason he wants your money is because he wants you. He wants all of your money because he wants all of you. He knows your heart and he wants your heart. And he knows how easily your heart can be led to places other than him by money. He knows how easily your heart can be led astray by money. Jesus said things like, if you love your life in this world, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you will gain it for eternity. He said things like, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. And the masters that he's talking about when he says that are God and money. You can't love both. You can't serve both. Jesus also knows the reason he wants all of your money is because he knows that a love of money in your heart as it gets a hold in our hearts will destroy us. A love of money can lead to destructive patterns of workaholism, consumerism and materialism, wanting and and having more stuff to find value and meaning and pride that we can walk amongst people and be wealthy. All of these destructive behaviours have the love of money at their root. And the best cure for the love of money is to get rid of it. You think about it, any struggle you have with any sin in your life, the best way to, to, to deal with that sin is to turn away from it as much as possible to get rid of it, to, to get people around you who can support you, to help you get rid of this addiction or get rid of this, this habit that is causing you pain and causing your family pain. The best thing you can do is get rid of it out of your life. And so Jesus says, the best way to deal with a love of money is to give your money away. Be generous. He says this to the rich young ruler. He can see in the rich young ruler this love of money. And so as this guy comes with pride in his heart for all the, all the blessing that he has from God because he's followed the law and therefore he's been blessed financially by God, Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing, just one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. That's a bit offensive, isn't it? That's a bit drastic. It's a bit over the top, is it not, from Jesus? Jesus can see the destructive nature that the love of money has in this rich young ruler. And so he's saying to him, the best thing you can do is give it all away and then make room in your heart to serve God, to follow me. What's really interesting is a chapter, less than a chapter later, there's another story about another wealthy man that Jesus goes to have lunch with in his house. Zacchaeus, I think we know if we've been around church, For a while, we know the story of Zacchaeus, Zach, let's call him, because I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. Zacchaeus, 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 whatever, Zach. 
And he has this encounter with Jesus. Jesus pinpoints him. He chooses him out of the crowd and he says, today I'm coming to your place for a meal. And as he enters the house, Jesus doesn't say that much other than that. But Zach, Zach stands up in the middle of this lunch party and he says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zach was a tax collector. I guarantee you he cheated people out of money because that's how he made money. Anything he could extort from a person above what he would pass on to the Roman government, he got to keep for himself. So guaranteed he would have cheated people out of money. So he's giving half of his possessions away and other people who he's ripped off, I'll give four times the amount back. He's giving everything away. There's this life that he's lived pursuing and loving money, but this encounter with Jesus, he's going, I can't continue to serve this. I need to serve Jesus. And so I'm giving everything away. What does Jesus say in reply? Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus wants all of your money because he wants all of your heart. He wants you to give everything that is in your hand for his purposes, for his kingdom, because that is a, the, the surest symbol of your heart being fully surrendered to him. Here's the danger of thinking tithing, 10%. When we think about tithing as a spirit, and it's a very good guide. I think in Old Testament law, that, that's what it was in the New Testament. I think the new thing is 100%. I think the new thing is generosity. That's the new measure that Jesus gives us because the danger with tithing is this. We say, if I give 10% to God, 90% is mine to do with what I like. When you stand before your heavenly Father at the end of your life, you're not giving an account for 10% of your resources. You're giving an account for 100%. You're giving an account for everything you did. Everything you did. You trust in Jesus, you'll walk joyfully and full of love into his, into his heaven. But I reckon when we get to heaven, a lot of the noises that will come out of our mouths, apart from the joy of seeing Jesus face to face, will be, oh my goodness, what a waste of that season of my life. How, how, how foolish of me to chase after these things when now that I see the full glory of Jesus, all of this just seems so silly. You'll be accountable for 100%. And here's the other thing, God gives us 100% of himself. God doesn't give us 10% of his blessing. God doesn't give us 10% of his goodness. God doesn't tithe his love for us. God gives us 100% and furthermore to that, he owns 100% of all that we have anyway. You think your money is your money? It's not, God owns it all. God has it all. That, that's why even this phrase, give back to God, or give it to God is a bit of a silly phrase because it's his anyway. How do you give back to someone something that's already his? God doesn't tithe his blessing. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with 10% of the spiritual blessings in Christ. Now, every spiritual blessing. Jesus wants... 100% of your money because he wants 100% of you because he loves 100% of you and he gave 100% of himself to show you. But let's move from this as a bit of an over, uh, overarching broad theological concept and get a bit more practical. 
Because I don't, I don't, what, what we're not saying, just to be really clear, is 100% of your income should go in the bucket as you leave the door. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. There's a difference, this, this phrase of giving to God with my tithe. We give to the church for the church to do its thing, but everything we have is God's, right? These phrases are important. Sometimes language can betray us. We give to the church that we're a part of, but we give everything to God. But here's some practical hooks when we think about what we do with the money that God has entrusted us with, where He's like an investor in our lives and we're held accountable for what He gives us. Let's think about some of the things that He wants us to invest into with that money. The second thing after saying Jesus wants 100% of your money is that He is invested in the growth of His organisation. He's invested in the growth of His organisation. And that is a horrible way to phrase it but at least gets your attention a little bit. What, what that statement is meant to contain is this idea that Jesus wants the gospel to impact more people. He wants his church to grow and for his kingdom to come as people are impacted by his love and by his grace. Jesus wants his church to grow. He said it, I will build my church. That's been Jesus' plan for the last 2000 years and it has been an incredible growth over that period of time. That's why we're here. Because his church has grown and he wants his people invested in that growth, the growth of his church. And the church, this, is, this again speaks to the irony, the church is not confined by limited resources. The church doesn't need a whole lot of money to do its thing. And, and in fact, sometimes it's at its best when it's not dependent on a whole lot of money. But certainly money given to see the church grow can accelerate it. It's been helped as people have invested into it. If you look at Jesus himself, he didn't need a whole lot of cash to start his movement. We have these things called startups and you, you, you try and get investors to give you money so that you can start your movement. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't ask for money. Jesus had no money. Jesus had no, no place to lay his head. And that's what started his movement. The only thing he owned when he died were the clothes on his back and they all got ripped off him before he hung on a cross and died. And that's what started his movement. However, his movement has flourished when people have invested financial resources in the growth of his church. You can read about the women who provided financial support for Jesus and his friends as they ministered. You read that in Luke's Gospel. You read of a woman called Lydia who was a wealthy woman in Philippi that when Paul arrived there and shared the Gospel with her, she invested her significant wealth to see the church grow in that city. You can hear, you read about Barnabas, a guy who sold land and the profits from that land were given to the church so that it could be distributed among the people of the church. Paul asked the, the wealthy Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth who, who were a wealthy church to give generously to see churches in other areas that were in really struggling financial areas and in poverty, he asked them to give generously to see those churches grow and flourish. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How does he build his church now? He does it through his people. He does it through you and through me. And as people encounter his life transforming power and for us as a church, as Gateway Baptists, as we consider this, that Jesus wants to build his church through our church, through what we're doing. We want to open more doors in more places so that more people can experience his love and understand what that day when he hung on the cross meant for them. 
We want more people to do that. And in 2018, we planted this campus. And this campus was planted with a whole lot of financial investment. It began with many of you who came that first day and said, we want a, we want a gospel-centred church to be planted here so we can open more doors for more people to encounter the life-transforming message of Jesus. And there was a guy who worked out at the gym next door whose name is James Smith. He was working out at the gym and he saw what was going on. He went, what's, what's going on here? Oh, it's a church. I'm going to go check that out. And he came to faith in Jesus, he and his partner, Abby. And now they're raising their kids in the way of the kingdom in this live different way as a result of them encountering Jesus through the, these doors that they walked through one Sunday morning. We baptised James and Abby last year or the year before, and it was a fantastic celebration. That's one story of one family. We want to see more and more of this. And it takes an investment of time and talent, but it also takes an investment of our treasure. As we offer 100% of ourselves and of our resources to Jesus, He will open more doors. And it's not just the doors of our church buildings that we open. We need a bigger vision than just seeing people walk through these doors in order to encounter the love of Jesus. We need to start to see that our front doors of our houses are doors that he wants to open so that more people can encounter his love as well. We need to start to see that our office doors and the doors to our classrooms are places that people can walk through and encounter the love of Jesus. We need to see that the doors of our cars are places where people can step through and encounter the love of Jesus. There are doors everywhere. In fact, Jesus has doors in every nook and cranny of our city that he wants people to walk through so that more people in those places can encounter his life-transforming love. Jesus packages this all up in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, when he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I reckon among other things that I'm about to talk about, when Jesus said that, one of these investments in the kingdom of heaven is to invest in the growth of his church. But there's another way that we can make such investments the third principle when it comes to Jesus and money is that Jesus has a deep compassion for the poor and the oppressed. Jesus has compassion for the poor and the oppressed. Jesus cares more about poverty and injustice than we do. When Jesus looks upon his world, the world that he created and the people he created and he sees things like poverty and injustice, I reckon he rages with righteous anger. That's a bit of a, contradictory statement, but he, I think it's true, he rages with righteous anger. When Jesus looks upon desperate poverty and he sees people oppressed that he created in his image to, to experience full humanity as it was meant to be, he's actually enraged when he sees poverty and injustice. In fact, I would go as far as to say that God hates it. God hates it. And you've got to be careful. Whenever you start a sentence with God hates, you've got to be really careful what you say next. But I, I reckon we can safely say as we read through Scripture and we follow the thread of Him looking upon poverty and injustice, we look at the Psalms and the law and all these other things, you see that God hates poverty and injustice and therefore so should we. And we who have some measure of wealth should be concerned to invest some of it to alleviate poverty and injustice. 
I think most of us would know the name William Wilberforce. I can't even say it, but I know it. William Wilberforce, who played a significant role in ending slavery in his time. What you might not know about William Wilberforce is he had a bunch of mates who were really wealthy business people. And they financially supported his campaign from beginning to end. And without those guys who don't get a mention in all the history books, they might get a little paragraph here or there or something, they actually made it possible for Wilberforce to fight this battle on injustice through the financial investment from like-minded, wealthy business people. God hates poverty and injustice and he's active in ending it and we should be too. I mean, how many of us need who read the Bible a bit? Already there's verses coming to mind, I reckon. Let me, let me give you three of them. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. 1 Timothy 16, 17 to 19. It's a brilliant summary of these two focal points about the growth of the church and poverty and injustice. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. James 2, 14 to 17, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. God cares about this stuff and so should we. And Sarah's been with us today to share a little bit about what we are doing corporately as a church to care for the poor. We support organisations like Bloom and iAfrica who are doing something about the gross injustices in their countries, in their nations. And I'm really proud to be a part of a church that is concerned for those things. As a church, we gave $1.7 million in the Gateway Beyond Month, $1.7 million above and beyond our usual rhythmic giving to see the ministries of our local churches happen. We gave $1.7 million to do two things. One is to plant more campuses so that people can walk through the doors, the growth of the church can happen. But the other big reason is to support people who are working in places where poverty and injustice are rife. And it's right for us to invest in that. But I want to tell you, church, that it's more than just giving to other people who are doing that. Being concerned for poverty and injustice is actually a lifestyle that we live. And as we walk around this world, as we work and as we have fun with friends and as we do whatever we do, may we always be alert to the people around us who are in poverty or are suffering injustice that God would call us to step in and use what's in our hand to alleviate poverty and injustice. Jesus actually created margin in his life to do this, to be ready and available to respond when he saw people who were suffering and people who were suffering oppression and those who were poor. 
the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not a story that's intended to motivate us to start and support organisations. It's a story, it's a parable about challenging us to respond to need as we see it, as we see it in the moment. Jesus wants us to share his heart for the poor and for the oppressed and share with him in his mission to alleviate it. The fourth principle is this. Let me just recap. He wants 100% of your money. He's, in, he's invested in the growth of his organisation. He has compassion for the poor and the oppressed. The final thing, the final principle for this morning, there could be many others, by the way. So it's not the final one, it's just my fourth for the morning. He cares about you and your family. That's a relief. He cares about you and your family. And in this time of rising interest rates, higher costs of living, the rental crises we're a part of that some of you are really in the midst of right now, the general uncertainties about the future, I wanna read to you some words from Jesus that I pray rather than me explaining it, rather than me talking through it as a principle, just read these words from Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with faith about our Father's concern and care for us as we think about money in this world and in this moment. This is the words of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So with those four principles laid down, can I present now what I think is a, is a really simple but I hope uh, a really helpful and subjective tool for you. I'm not standing up here telling you what to do with your money. I hope I haven't gone there. <laughs> Maybe some of you are feeling like I have. I apologise if that's what you feel like. But can I present a simple and, and hopefully helpful tool that will, that will help you to take away the principles from today and either as an individual, as a family, discuss together and review together uh, where you're at with you in your financial situation and how aligned you are with the Kingdom of God. I remember having a conversation with my, with my dad uh, about how much money we earn. So we've got, just got a simple XY graph here with income. And up, up that left-hand side, what's that, the X-axis or the Y-axis? That's the Y? Okay, very good. I wasn't very good at maths. Uh, the Y-axis is how much money you earn. Okay, so think about where you might be along that line. And it's very, very open-ended. But let's imagine that you earn 40 grand a year. Okay, so 40 grand a year, it's not much these days. But this is the conversation with my dad. When you earn 40 grand a year, you'll live in a house 
that reflects 40 grand a year. So you probably rent, maybe you live with a few mates, 40 grand a year is sort of the income of someone sort of fresh out of uni or even, even still studying a little bit. It's not a whole lot of money. So you'll live in a house that reflects 40 grand a year. You'll also drive a car that reflects 40 grand a year. Anyone ever drive a Datsun 180Y? That's like a 40 grand a year car, right? I had a, I had a 1988 Holden Astra. That was my first car. Jonesy will remember that car. Yeah, you remember that car? Yeah, very good. Um, that was fun to drive uh, when it was, was drivable. Anyway, um, so you'll have a car that reflects 40 grand a year. And then you'll have a phone. You'll have a Nokia 3210 or something like that that reflects <laughs> you earning 40 grand a year. That, that's, that's what happens. So, so you'll, the life that you live will reflect that, right? 40 grand a year. Let's imagine though, you get a promotion, uh, you, you change jobs and suddenly you earn what you think you're worth and you earn 80 grand a year. Here's what we don't do. Here's what we don't do. This is what we're told not to do. Leave everything as it is and put 40 grand in your pocket. What do we do? We upgrade everything. We upgrade everything. We might think about buying a house. You can't buy a house in 80 grand a year, I don't think. Anyway, not these days. We'll upgrade the car. We'll do what I did and you trade in your Holden Astra for a Holden Ute which is a very irresponsible car for a teenager to drive. You'll go from the Nokia 3210, you'll go into Telstra and you'll sign up for a contract and you'll get the newest iPhone, which I don't know what number it's up to now, but that's what we do. When we earn more money, everything goes up. And now imagine it's 120 grand a year. Imagine it's 200 grand. Imagine it's a million bucks a year. Everything keeps going up. That's the way we live. That's the way we're told to live in our Western world. That is how we do things. But what if we said... This amount is enough for the life that we want to live. And this is where it's subjective for you. For the car I wanna drive, for the house I wanna live in, for the phone I wanna have and everything else what I wanna provide for my kids, this is enough. Let's call it a green line. Let's envision it as a green line. Now, I'm not telling you what your green line should be. It's for you to decide. There's a passage of Scripture that says everyone should decide in their heart what they're to give. There is, a, there is, by the grace of God under the new covenant, there is a self-reflection to go, okay, how much is enough? God, I want 100% of it to be yours, but this is the amount I feel like we need to spend on our home, on our car, on our phone, on other things in our lives. We're, we're agreeing either as, I'm agreeing with myself as an individual, I'm agreeing with my family, this is enough. This is my green line. So the question for you is a really simple question. What's your green line? What's your green line? Right now, are you earning more than enough? Could your green line bring you back down a little bit to go, you know what, I've got some margin, I can bring that back down. Anything then you earn above that green line is your capacity to invest in the kingdom of God to invest in seeing the gospel taken to more places so more people can hear the life-transforming message of Jesus. It's your capacity to give, to see poverty and injustice alleviated. Anything below that green line, and this is something that that Jesus loves, by the way, to to put out as a bit of an extra challenge. Anything you give below the green line, that's called sacrifice. Jesus loves when we give sacrificially as well. The reality is I look across the room, that green line's gonna be everywhere up and down that chart for every single person. No one's gonna be in the same place as the next person. And you decide, knowing that you are accountable for 100% of your resources, to say prayerfully and before God, God, this is our green line, creating space for us to be generous 
towards the work of your kingdom in this world. And here's, I, I, this, is, this, is, this is a great reality for so, so many of us as we consider our place at Gateway Redlands, at Gateway Baptist Church. If you can't see yourself giving generously to the work of Gateway Baptist Church because you don't like what we're doing, my challenge to you is that you're not in the right church. You're not in the right church. If you can't give with confidence that the local church that you're a part of with your time and with your talent, you don't trust to be good with your treasure as well, you you need to find a church where that is a reality for you. Because the local church are the people that carries the mission of God forward in history. And I stand on this stage with full integrity saying, I love, and I've been a part of a lot of churches, I love what we invest into as a church. I love what we see into the future as we think about that $1.7 million that was given, but also every dollar that's given to this church to see it move forward. It's good stuff. It's, It's kingdom of God stuff that you're investing in. Said before, as a family, we are, we've been hit with that interest rate hike and it's caused us to review and to rethink and to recast our financial state. And we had to do a bit of that and, and think about meal planning, which I hate doing because I like being spontaneous in the kitchen, but actually meal planning and know what I'm going to be cooking that day. It's a big sacrifice for me, but I'm willing to make it for my family. And they're willing to make it for me. But as we do this as a family, as we ask what's our green line, it's also a time for us as a church to be thinking, recasting, reviewing, because as we said before, our giving is below budget, which means we're still living within our means, but our giving is below what we expected to come in. So we can't do all the things that we anticipated doing. And that's okay. That's okay. But as we review as individuals and as families, as we review our financial position and, we, and as an outcome of that, it may mean there's a bit more that you could give to the church. That helps us as we plan out the next 12 months. That helps us as we think about the future and as we look to 2028 and, and moments like that to know, God, this is what you're calling us to do. And the church is invested to see it happen, not just with their money, but with their time and their talent as well. That helps us as we look to 2024 and beyond. And so where I want to land this is just in a moment of reflection. Just a moment to pause and to pray. And maybe you, I'm not saying you do this out loud, just do it, but maybe lean on the shoulder of your husband or wife, maybe grab the, the, the hands of your kids or something like that. If you're on your own, just a time to bow your head and prayerfully consider all that we've read today from Scripture, all that I hope that I've explained from these four principles of how Jesus looks at money to prayerfully consider and ask ourselves the question, okay, what's, what's my green line? What's our green line? So I give you this moment just to do that, just to ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts to assess our commitment to Jesus and his kingdom. To review, rethink, recast, re-envision our financial state with that question, what's my green line? What's our green line? And what's our capacity for generosity? 
Just give you a minute or so just to silently reflect on those things. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.